0: Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Blonde,
1: Brunette, and Confused.
0: I'm Bella, the blonde one. I'm
1: Lauren, the brunette one. And I'm Hannah, the confused one.
0: An unfortunate truth about college is that sexual assault does occur, and we truly believe it's something that isn't open and honestly discussed enough. So today, we want to use this episode as an opportunity to talk about the process of Title IX, as well as how to help a friend going through something like this.
1: An important content warning for this episode is that there will be a mention of sexual assault, however, we will not be going into any specific incident details, and with this in mind, please make the best decision for you when deciding whether you should listen.
0: In order to help provide the best understanding of this topic, we have a guest in the studio today who has been through the Title IX process and can thus share his own experience and knowledge of it. Drew, do you want to introduce yourself?
2: My name is Drew Perkoski. You can find me online in a couple of places, and I've written about my experience with Title IX already.
0: If you head on over to some of our other social medias, we will be sharing the work that Drew's already done about this issue, if you're interested.
1: So to start off this episode, we just wanted to ask, what is Title IX, and what does Title IX The Office do?
2: So Title IX is truly a one-sentence law preventing discrimination based on sex at any institution of education, whether it's a high school, a college, or whatever that gets federal funding. However, over time, Title IX has been used to help combat sexual harassment, sexual assault, retaliation, and everything else related to that, and then more specifically at universities The Title IX office is supposed to handle all claims of sexual assault, harassment, dating violence, all those sorts of things on campus. But it gets a little complicated with the multiple types of reporting and all the different offices they delegate to.
0: Another really important thing we wanted to do as we're continuing this conversation is we're hoping you can educate us on good terms and vocabulary when people are trying to talk about this topic amongst themselves.
2: Intimate partner violence rather than domestic violence is a great term to use because relationships get complicated and domestic kind of seems to imply certain things and at times it's not. So intimate partner violence or IPV. And another one is when it gets to specific terminology over what exactly happened, you know, was it rape? Was it sexual assault? Was it sexual violence? These are all terms that we can get into a huge debate on. There's something called the mechanics fallacy which is basically that sexual assault is the only kind of violent crime where it's about who did what to who with what rather than the damage you cause. Like if you stab somebody, it's did you kill them or not? How much damage did you cause? Whereas with sex crimes, it doesn't seem to be that way, especially in a lot of states. This was something that impacted me and other male survivors who I know is that men can't be raped. It all falls under like sodomy legislation for certain acts and all of the kind of legality behind that and where those things come from. And I think as we continue to push in society against kind of like heteronormative ideas of sex and as we really push for especially LGBT equality and trans rights in particular, these laws will hopefully change to have more inclusive language.
1: What is the process for reporting an incident?
2: So I think important things to note about the reporting process is that you don't have to immediately report. That was something that came up with me was that by the time I got to public safety, it had been a few days. And that's perfectly fine. You have up to a year to report in a lot of states or in a lot of jurisdictions, depending on whether you're going to the school or through a police force or what have you. But yeah, you don't immediately have to report. There are plenty of reasons why you would be still in a kind of state of shock after it's happening or as it's happening. So don't feel pressure. Don't feel that your case is entirely lost if you wait a day or two. Because sometimes, especially right after, you feel that immediate kind of just shock and awe of what just happened to me. Other things that are good to mention is that a lot of universities have confidential reporting resources. Usually that'll be like a chaplain, a rabbi, or anybody in their counseling center. Those are people who, if you tell them, they don't have to put you into a conduct process or anything, they're really just there to help you. State by state, as I understand, we probably have listeners everywhere, things change. In state of New York, there's a really great law, 129B, which outlines the policies and processes. It protects a student's right to an appeal. It protects students' rights for various things. And it's really well laid out. But otherwise, every university has their own kind of distinct set of policies. So it's best to familiarize yourself with the policies at your university, just so that you know specifically what's
0: going to happen. Something that not a lot of people realize is this process requires a lot of time and a lot of your energy. While going through this, you have to continue being a student. I was wondering if you wanted to expand on that
2: it's important to note that on universities, the first two weeks is where almost all reports of sexual assault will come from. Mm. It's right when people get there in the fall semester, right when Greek organizations start recruiting, everybody's seeing their friends again, all the parties are happening for the first time. That is where the majority of sexual violence happens at universities. My university case didn't finish until into this spring semester, and that was, again, continued because I appealed, in my case, twice. But on another note, like, I'm still going through the legal process. My attacker even admitted in writing, so it seems pretty clear-cut. They have it written down yes I acknowledge this did happen is the quote there and it's still going on so it really will take up time you know it takes away from your classes getting ready for hearings because most of the time you're not permitted to like hire an attorney or something which is also something not a lot of students could do but if you were thinking about it generally you have to represent yourself and as a victim you're broken about it you're caught up in it my hearing took up an entire Friday afternoon I was in a room for three to four hours arguing and cross-examining and kind of trying to get my or held responsible, and ultimately it was to no avail in the university process.
0: What's the difference going through it through the school as well as legally, and how did you decide to do both or to do one or the other?
2: Yeah. So I guess the biggest difference, a university can only do things within the scope of the university. So they can, at best, remove a student from the university. At worst, they'll just do nothing and then you're stuck in classes with the same person. They can also issue interim protections such as no contact orders. They can help you rearrange classes. And also, as long as you're going through a Title IX process, the biggest thing a Title IX officer can do for you is explain to your professors that you don't have to directly acknowledge what's happening. They can just go to a professor and say, this student needs XYZ accommodation, whether that's they need to make up this test because they have something or whatnot, but with the legal system, it can get more drawn out. They have higher standards, so uh, at least at Hofstra, it's still currently preponderance, which is 51% more likely than not, but that's changing federally thanks to Betsy DeVos. If you can't tell by my tone my opinion, you can see my Twitter. Yeah, uh, but that's actually changing. So universities are going to get more stringent, but still not to the point of criminally guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. That's the big thing with the legal system. That can get even more drawn out. You're going to have to work with officers. You're going to have to work with detectives. You're going to have to work with the district attorney and everything. And it is just such an extremely long-winded process. One of the things I remember specifically when I was reporting to the police, they did me the favor of at least coming into the public safety office where I already was. The officers asked me, like, "Why? what took you so long to report over and over again? And that's not necessarily harassment they really are trying to get an answer but when you're still in that very vulnerable position where you're trying to have somebody else write down what happened to you so that they can get their report and everything. It's strenuous and it's something that I don't look upon fondly. It's not like I had a great time reporting being sexually assaulted to three cops from Long Island who are double my age asking me the specifics of a sexual encounter, albeit non-consensual. But yeah, I think the biggest difference is that court at best is going to hold them criminally guilty. Now, what that looks like depends a lot on the situation, again, going back to the mechanics fallacy and things. What happened to me, although the university would define it as sexual assault, although you know, generally socially we would in the state of New York it's misdemeanor forcible touching so you don't even have to register as a sex offender like my attacker at best, again I'm still going through the whole process, won't be considered a sex offender even though very much they did and I think socially we would consider what they did completely wrong especially with everything that's been going on in the past few years to show just how wrong sexual violence is with Me Too and everything. So I think that's kind of the biggest difference between the two.
0: Hearing about what you're talking about frustrates me. Is there any way for someone to get involved in advocate for policy that they believe should be changed or improved.
2: There are definitely a ton of ways to get involved and try and be a change maker. whether that's campus organizations, I know here at Hofstra we have several, or at other universities like Princeton, there's Princeton 9 now is something that's going on as we're recording this, where Princeton is kind of really trying to shut down people who are saying that their Title 9 office is not enough. Now, I've spoken with people who do work for Princeton with Title 9 cases, and they do so much more than Hofstra. So at our university, our push is even to be on par with them, but even there, it's not enough. Otherwise, specifically to Title nine. Know Your Nine is a great organization. And then other organizations that focus on sexual assault and relabeling that, it's complicated because sexual assault is generally considered a women's issue, but it really does affect everybody. You know, men, women, non-binary, trans people, uh, whatever you identify as, everybody can be a victim of sexual assault. But the first places I would go to is go to just general places that are helping to lobby for just what's right. Especially like Human Rights Campaign, if there's the Women's March and a newer organization called Supermajority, which really is the push to show that women in particular, is 51% of the population who have been systemically oppressed in American history, there is still a place for American feminism. We still have room to go, especially in our legislation. So those are just a handful of the great organizations, I would say, that you should try and combine your efforts with.
0: People are quick to make assumptions. It's like, oh, this doesn't happen to guys, Mm -hmm. but it does, and we don't talk about that. Or the fact that people, they hear that it happens to a girl, and they're like, oh, it must have been what she was wearing, or it must have been all this stupid stuff. All
2: right, so I'm going to go off now. Get affirmative consent. I don't care if you're hooking up with somebody. I don't care how drunk you are. Get affirmative consent. Guys, gals, nbs, ladies, gentle thems, whoever you may be, get affirmative consent every time, all right? And to every detail of it. I know that sex ed in America is appalling and we're not taught the things we really ought to be taught, but at literally every detail. You know what's really hot? Being asked, is this what you want? That is what's hot. And that's kind of me going off on that. But especially for guys, the idea that's so ingrained into toxic masculine culture is that, oh, you should enjoy anything that happens to you. I've been told by people who I still consider friends, like, oh, you should have enjoyed it because my attacker was female too. The idea of, like, oh, you should just enjoy it. Like, you're getting an opportunity here. That any form of sex, consensual or not, is seen as an opportunity for men is completely crazy. And another place that we can all step in is when you hear somebody talking about, like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go to. A party, there are going to be drunk girls or drunk guys there. That's an easy opportunity. Cut your friends off right there and note that is not affirmative consent. That is sexual assault. That is rape. That is dating violence. That is sexual violence. That is not permissible. That's the biggest thing you can do. And it's on everybody, it's on us to make sure that our culture changes to really see sexual violence and sexual assault as what it is. To emphasize affirmative consent and all details of sex, whether it's a hookup or not. You know, I'm not going to diss on hookup culture or anything. If that's your thing, fine. But make sure it's consensual, because if it's not consensual, then you're just using an app to facilitate your sexually aggressive behaviors, and that's not
0: cool. Call your friends out, please. (laughs) Call anyone out.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay, so next we wanted to talk about something called FERPA and the difficulty of avoiding them and issues that you've had and you've seen people on campus have.
2: Yeah, so FERPA protects your academic records. That's why you'll have to sign a release to say, oh yeah, my parents can see my grades so that they can yell at me when I fail class or something. <laughs> but outside of that, it also applies to Title IX because your conduct record is also an academic record. Now, outside of the process, we get situations about changing classes and things and trying to change your res halls. And sometimes you'll have unique opportunities. Like I know somebody who was an RA last semester who saw their attacker was one of their residents and got them changed. But then with other things, like during the process, you're somewhat limited to who all you can talk to. It's really within reason. That's where they'll get you for harassment and retaliation. Personally, I've had my attacker report to public safety twice false allegations of harassment against me. The first time I got it shut down, actually the first time it was like a whole thing. I went through Title IX, they tried to yell at me, I got an attorney. It was a whole thing. Second time, they then didn't ask for a conduct process just so that the interim protection would last a whole year rather than only through the extent of that harassment hearing. And the whole thing is that like, oh, this is confidential the other student has a right to not have people know that they were accused of something especially when they weren't held responsible so you kind of have to play this funny little middle ground of saying like this thing happened to me i can't say a name but then like to your good friends you might be like hey yeah this is the person because i need help and there's a reasonable expectation there but then when your friends go talking about it past your control you get into these muddy waters here and it's just really problematic and complicated to both respect the rights of both students when it comes to confidentiality the one thing i will say is that if the other party tells other people what's going on, then they've broken their right to confidentiality. Like in my case where they admitted it to a group chat of people before I even reported, they had already broken confidentiality, so that helped me out a little bit there. But if you're not lucky enough, like if your attacker really keeps it hush and just outright denies publicly that anything ever happened, it's really hard to talk about it without possibly being held as like a harasser or retaliating and breaking that other student's right to confidentiality.
0: Going off of the idea that they can keep it really hush and under wraps and things like that that can lead to these people who should be held responsible getting things like leadership positions on campus or continuing to get these opportunities that perhaps they may not be the best fit for considering their actions I know for me it's been really frustrating to learn that especially as a student of the university I was wondering if you wanted to touch on that at all
2: Unless you were to go through an alternative resolution, which has to be agreed upon by both parties, and by some chance your attacker agrees not to take on student leadership positions, unless they're held responsible, there's nothing you can do, because it's very black and white. You're either responsible or you're not. You're either guilty or you're not, basically, and you can't take away a student's right to participate on campus just because they were accused of something, especially if they're found not responsible. Now, that gets difficult when you're a victim. Like, personally for me, I don't tune in to Hofstra's radio station, because I know my attacker works there, and I don't want to turn on the radio and hear a voice that I never want to hear again. But it also comes into other things. Like in our honors college, we were having this discussion on content warnings, especially for sexual violence in lectures. And my attacker and all of their friends came in and made direct eye contact with me and sat down while I'm speaking up about, you know, what it's like to be a survivor of sexual assault on campus, especially. What it's like to have been victimized like that and how that plays out in academic settings. But at the same time, I don't really have any Good opportunity so fully respecting the rights of other students to participate and be involved on campus it's just very difficult on victims I think and that's where it gets complicated of how do you support your friends while they're watching somebody who wasn't held responsible by whatever reason still continue to succeed being sexually assaulted is never someone's fault. a victim should never feel disempowered by their assailant or attacker however you want to put it you can feel disempowered when a system however starts to work against you I feel like that was a big reason why I transferred, oh, am transferring uh, at the current moment. Don't know exactly where yet. WashU, if you're listening early, let me in. (laughs)
0: Um,
2: But yeah, no, I feel like it's important to really be who you are. And if you're at the right school for you, don't let a single person stand against you. But when a school stops being the right school for you, when it becomes apparent that your university does not care about you the way they should, then it's definitely time to evaluate your situation and say, do I feel comfortable? Do I feel safe here?
1: can you talk about how you could support a friend who is going through this?
2: I think the best thing you can do as a friend is really just listen. Everybody copes with these things differently, everybody responds differently. And the best thing you can do is just be aware, be listening, be attentive. If a friend says, Hey, I need a degree of separation between me and my attacker, keep in mind 80% of victims know their attacker. So the odds that you have friends of friends is high. And that was one of the things for me. I drew a line in the sand and I said, You can talk to me or you can talk to them. I'm not telling you which one to choose, but you just have to make a choice because I need that degree of separation. And if your friend makes a statement like that, make that decision, but know like they're going through something and if they ask you for something it's on you as a good friend to be there for that person now I'm not saying to just let somebody spiral out of control if they're like oh I'm fine if they start drinking their problems away and not going to classes don't let them just do whatever but check in on them be aware of what they're going through and help them out where they need it I think intuitively we all kind of have a good sense of how to care for people and if you don't have that good intuitive sense the best thing you can do is really just ask
0: We've talked a little bit in this episode about the harmful assumptions or stereotypes that can be made in these situations. But there's also a lot of really harmful stigma. And we were wondering if there's anything you wanted to help our listeners understand that they can change in their own perceptions.
2: There is... Nothing that you ever did as a victim to cause this. I know one of the most hurtful things that happened to me, like I told my dad and he was like, well, you could have seen it coming. It was like the worst comment I could have gotten. You didn't do anything. If you're going through that right now, this is for you. You didn't do anything. Victims don't ask for it. Otherwise they wouldn't be victims because if you ask for it, that's consent. So anyway, the biggest stigma right now, I think the biggest kind of disillusionment that's going on especially in this country is the idea that if somebody can't be held criminally guilty, the other person must have been lying. Just because there isn't enough evidence to find somebody guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, and perfectly acknowledging innocent until proven guilty, doesn't take away the fact that that person is in fact a victim. It doesn't take away the fact that this person did get raped or they like, did get victimized in some way. Especially if somebody's hurt, it takes so much courage. I think right now to stand up and say like this thing happened for me, especially if you're in a kind of community or if you're from a certain like identity group where speaking up about it can be seen as very negative. If they're in a gap Guys listening out there who are thinking about that time where you know I wasn't really asking for that then but it still happened to me anyway because I think it really impacts men the most the idea that like you're not allowed to talk about it you're supposed to be grateful for every sexual encounter and there's no regard to consent there. in Georgia the just passed a very 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 controversial bill that I'm not going to get into the meat of it, but it was a tack on where if you report a rape and you go through the whole process, you know, this is mainly for people assigned female birth, and your attacker is found not guilty, then they're going to immediately investigate you for false accusation. That idea is incredibly toxic. That idea is something that's going to degrade victims. It's going to worsen reporting because oftentimes these things happen behind closed doors. It's hard to prove these things, but that doesn't take away from what you expect. Experienced, and you should always feel empowered to report, to go through the full process, to do everything you can to hold these people responsible. And nobody should be able to take that away.
0: So obviously you are like at least somewhat comfortable talking about this since that's what you just did in this podcast. So you're just wondering why you choose to talk up about it.
2: The important thing for me was that the more I speak up about it, the more likely you are to either empower another victim or, you know, show somebody, hey, this is what it's like to go through this and have somebody be empathetic to you and to other victims. And that just as a like global community, the best thing we can do as victims is to speak up, say this does happen, that this is a thing, that it is a complex issue, that it's not as simple as you might want it to be, and that that's something we need to confront. Because the more we confront it, the more likely we are to actually make some sort of change.
1: If you could say anything to someone who is going through the process right now or have had this happen to them, what advice would you give them?
2: Kind of going off my last thing, I think my best advice is stand up, fight back. That's really all there is. I'm not saying that like if you're in the moment because that's a you know crappy thing to say to somebody who's going through a sexual assault like right now. But if you're going through the process, stand up, fight back. There are going to be people who are going to try and shut you down. There are going to be people who think that everybody has an ulterior motive. There are going to be people who think that one false report 10 years ago, like we had at Hofstra, makes our whole process very hard to do. And like, oh, well, we have one false report, so now all of them are going to assume false, unless they can really prove it otherwise. Give it your all, give them hell, and just fight back, because that's the only way you're going to get this. It's the only way any of us are going to make the change in the world we want to see. That's the only way that we're going to change the definitions of what is and isn't. That's how we're going to change. How how it's perceived in the social mindset is standing up saying this happened to me and I will not be shut down.
0: So hopefully everyone who's listened to this podcast now feels that they're knowledgeable enough to use their voice to start this really important conversation. So to end the podcast, we know you have mentioned some resources. We were just hoping you could restate some places that people can go, not only if they're going through this right now, but also if they want to learn more in order to be an advocate and a supporter
2: So the biggest one nationally for Title IX, Know Your Nine, again, nine in this case for Title IX is Roman numeral, so IX if you're trying to Google it. Uh, But Know Your Nine is a great resource. They're really pushing forward to try and make sure that students are protected on their campuses, both when it comes to gender discrimination and sexual assault. Other than that, there are plenty of other organizations, depending on what specifically you take issue with in the world. If you're trying to be an advocate for victims, there are various local organizations all around the country that can really help you out, whether it's through counseling, whether they can help you connect with somebody that might be able to guide you through the process a little bit more. And I know certain universities definitely have student organizations which are centered around helping victims and uniting them around the central cause of improving their university's Title IX system.
0: We want to thank you so much for coming in to talk with us today. And if anyone listening wants to see more of the work they've done or some other resources, we will link them on our social medias. Thank you so much for listening. You're all shining stars.